0: Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I was once described as the manager, the mentor, and the visionary who went to the theater with an unfocused dilettante and raised the curtain on a superstar.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode nine in our series that explores the history of Mainman, Man, the innovative management rights company that redefined the business of rock and roll and became synonymous with the hedonism of the early 70s.
0: You just signed for anything you wanted. We had a chef on the road with us whose job it was not to cook for us but to go around the city and find out where's the best restaurant and book four chairs, you know, book a table for the band. So we went for a meal before the gig every night, in the best restaurant.
1: Mainman Man was formed by entrepreneur and impresario Tony DeFries, who worked with a larger-than-life cast of acts that included Amanda Lear, Dana Gillespie, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Iggy Pop, Mott the Hoople, and David Bowie.
0: David got very excited when he- DeFries came on board. DeFries talked that talk and he told David, I am impressed with the Colonel Tom Parker Elvis model of management and artist relationship. I promise you, you will be as successful and as famous as Elvis. That's all David needed to hear. I was there for that speech.
1: In today's episode, DeFries explains why he was so impressed by David's early songs, and what it was about them that he thought had the potential for David to become not just a successful singer-songwriter, but a major star.
0: So today I want to talk about why I saw something in David at the beginning that was largely missed and actually took me a long time to persuade other people to see this same thing, probably another two or three years. And it begins with Songs he'd already written and songs he'd already recorded and some that he was in the process of recording. But if we go back and look at the song that got him his initial moment of fame, which was quite a short moment, Space Oddity. Space Oddity is a story in a song. And David's ability to tell stories in his songs and the possibility that we could actually make him do that In a stage setting that connected him to the audience. That's what I saw. That's why I thought he's got some quality that I've seen in a lot of other people. I've seen it in Dylan and Lennon, particularly, and George Harrison, to tell a story in a song. So let me talk about some of those songs and some of those stories that particularly impressed me. And let me start with Space Oddity because Space Oddity is a short but very compelling story of an astronaut who's floating in space. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on, commencing countdown, engines on, and then the count, and then this is Ground Control to Major Tom. And then there's a story of him talking to Ground Control. And we actually called our sound folk and our sound team Ground Control because of that, because we thought that's quite a nice thing to say. They are ground control for Major Tom when he's on stage. And look what he says, he says, "'I'm stepping through the dawn, "'and I'm floating in a most peculiar way, "'and the stars look very different today. "'For here I am, sitting in a tin can, "'far above the world, and planet Earth is blue. "'I think my spaceship knows which way to go.'" So these are floating around the moon in my tin can with nothing I can do. It's a marvellous description of somebody who is completely cut off from Earth, floating in space, and has no real control of how and if he gets back. A very poignant story. On that same album, there's some other interesting songs that have a lot to do with other writers. And every songwriter, at the end of the day, always takes from something they take from personal experience they take from something they've read they take from the play the poem or they take from a song they've heard that influenced them and that's what makes people connected to music in many ways so let's look at another one Unwashedness slightly dazed actually unwashedness somewhat slightly dazed and he talks about being amazed about the strange, unwashed, happily slightly dazed person that he is. I'm raving mad and somewhat slightly dazed. And that theme, that comes up again for David. There's a song called Signet Committee. I bless you madly, sadly, as I tie my shoes. I love you badly. This is a very interesting group of songs. And then he talks about an occasional dream. I recall how we lived on the corner of a bed and we'd speak of a Swedish room and hessian and wood. We'd see and sleep so close. It was long, long ago, but I can still touch your name. I see your face in mine and I keep a photograph. An occasional dream. Now after that, there's a song that very complicated, very important, largely ignored by everybody, and it's called The Wild Eye Boy from Free Cloud. And it's got a lot of commonality with a Beatles song, with a McCartney song, and a little help from Lennon, I'm sure. The Beatles song was called The Fall on the Hill, and everybody knows it, and lots of people have covered it. The Wildlife Boy from Free Cloud talks about a solemn-faced village and a hangman and a mountain. And it talks about a mountain that moves its eyes. The mountain moved its eyes to the world of real eyes. And the village dreadful cried as the rope begins to rise. The cottages fell like a playing called hell, the tumbling round, from the mountain of free cloud. That is a really, really interesting narrative for a song. And then we get into the memory of a free festival. The children, the children of the summer's end played our songs, felt the London sky. It was heaven. The sun machine is coming down and we're gonna have a party. David performed that song at the Glastonbury Festival, which was the following year, not 70, but 71. And it was a magic moment for the people that were there. So when I read those lyrics, I listened to some of those songs, I realised, here's somebody who's writing songs that could have been written by Dylan or Lennon, and thinking about George Harrison, how Here Comes the Sun, and something in the way she moves. Or Dylan's just like a woman. And especially, a very long Dylan song took up a whole side of Blonde on Blonde. So those were the days of vinyl and 12-inch records. So that's a song that is actually 12 minutes long. And Al Cooper, who was one of the band and someone I knew well, Cooper with a K, produced that. And Dylan sings about the sad-eyed lady of the lowlands, a mercury mouth and a missionary smile, the child of the hoodlum cradled in her arms. These are astonishing lyrical images. And that's what I saw that David could do. And that made it interesting to work through and see where would he go. He already had some of the songs for the album that became The Man Who Sold The World. He'd started recording it, but wasn't yet finished. But again, on that album, you have an astonishing song called All The Mad Men. A day after day, they send my friends away to mansions cold and gray, to the far side of town where the thin men stalk the streets while the sand stay underground. Again, astonishing idea of a song that talks about, I can fly. I will scream, I will break me harm, I will do me harm. Here I stand, foot in hand, talking to my wall. I'm not quite right at all, am I? Don't set me free, I'm as heavy as can be. I'd rather stay here with all the madmen than perish with the sad men roaming free. I'd rather play here with all the madmen. I'm quite content, they're all as sane as me. This is not the song you find on an ordinary album. It's a song by somebody who has a special perspective. And that perspective can be shared with everybody in the same way that Dylan wrote Blowing in the Wind or Rolling Stone. The ideas expressed in those songs, the ideas, No Direction Home, the marvellous concept like a rolling stone. And that is what made me think, here is somebody who can take on the mantle of a Beatles or a Dylan or someone of that sort.
1: So did you actually explain to David that you thought the potential was there and all he needed was the right focus to take him to a wider
0: audience? I didn't really put it to David that way because I didn't think that was the problem. I thought the problem was much more that these songs were very, very difficult to communicate to an audience on stage in the way that he tried to do it either as a solo guitar playing singer or with a band or with one other person on piano, for example. Because the problem was the songs themselves needed theatricality. They needed to be almost performed and this was something that nobody was really doing. There were bands that did astonishing things on stage, but they were very limited astonishing things, Pink Floyd or even Hendrix. But Hendrix had what David at that point didn't have. David didn't have, he hadn't found, he hadn't developed this ability to communicate with the audience. And some performers have it without trying. Uh, See, I've seen Dylan, Janis Joplin, Presley, Hendrix, They didn't have to try, they just were. But for many, many, many performers, it's work, it's training, it's learning, it's rehearsal, and it's staging. It's making songs work on stage. And that was what was missing. David had these astonishing ideas, great lyrics, great song structures, but no ability at that point in time to perform them in a way that got the audience entirely connected. And so that Wild Eye Boy from Free Clouds example should have been a tremendously significant song, should have been a song that ran like a hard rain's going to fall, but it didn't. And that's because Dylan's lyric capability was so powerful and his personal presence on stage was so compelling that audiences whether they'd seen him or not they heard his songs they were captured and captivated and David hadn't got there yet he hadn't found that particular way of working a song and part of that also was because he didn't have the musical influence that he needed and I think that a large part of that was supplied by Mick Ronson when he came along songs that didn't have, if you like, musical colour, got a level of musical colour that made them very compelling. If you listen to the songs on Space Odyssey and then you listen to the songs on The Man Who Sold The World, there's a significant difference. There's more vigour, more presence in The Man Who Sold The World songs, especially when you look at songs like or the madman, or after all. He gives them structure and he makes them compelling because you have to listen to the next verse in just the same way that Hey Jude was enormously compelling as a song because it had that feeling of what happens next, what happens next. Musically, that's what Mick did with these songs. And you can hear it very particularly in songs like width of a circle for example so the width of a circle the lyric in a corner of the morning in the past i would sit and blame the master first and last great way to begin a song but then you've got to make it keep going keep it alive and this is what i think david was missing and lacking when ronson came along that changed and ultimately david learned to do it for himself he learned to say okay i need that piano player, Mike Garson, or that piano player, Michael Kamen, or that guitar player, Earl Slick, or whoever it was, he realised that he couldn't do it without that level of accomplishment. And that's the ability that he achieved to be able to essentially use other people. And that's always been the problem with bands. Bands often form, and every one member has performing part to do musically and sometimes on stage, but the band doesn't function well if they lose a member unless they can replace them. If you want to make someone a solo star, a solo performer, a Johnny Cash, a Presley, a Hendrix, a Dylan, you have to be able to give them what they need and have them be the centre of that musical theatrical experience Just like when you have a musical, the person playing the solo part, the person who gets to sing the song, someone who comes on and does Jesus Christ Superstar, or I Don't Know How to Love Him, or one of those absolutely essential songs is the person that everyone is then focused on and looking at. And if you can do that in a musical sense, as well as a theatrical sense, then you can make a superstar. That was my thought about david the first concert i saw him do wasn't one i organized because he had this um, friend who was sort of somewhat attached to mercury like an independent um, pr person calvin mark lee and calvin and angelo were busy setting up concerts for david which were usually solos or sometimes him and a few other musicians. But I don't know that I saw any of those. I think the first time I saw David performing was when he started playing songs for me at Haddon Hall. So it was just him and a piano, or him and a guitar. But the songs were always interesting. The songs were the interesting thing. So songs that came along later, or one that was already recorded, actually, that he then went and did. On the BBC, The Prettiest Star, another very nice song, starts out Cold Fire, You've Got Everything But Cold Fire, You Will Be My Rest and Peace Child. That very nice lyrics. Now, that song was probably dedicated to Mark Bolan, and that's who David did it with. And they did that at the BBC, I think, also in 1970. But that again was, that's a song that was really just about David's idea of a romantic engagement. It wasn't about Mark, to be honest with you, but it was a very nice song. I mean, you can see it's quite interesting. There's a a lyric in here where he says, One day, though it might as well be someday, you and I will rise up all the way, all because of what you are, the prettiest star. Now, that is actually part of a very famous song, which you're familiar with, I'm sure, called Summertime. And Summertime has a lyric, one fine morning you'll rise up singing. And this is where the idea came from. And that's a very, very well-known song that everybody's done, but especially it has marvelous connotations because it's part of that whole Paul Guillain-Best story. And I'm fairly sure that's where David got the inspiration for the song. And that's what David did. He took songs that other people had made and he made them his own. But he added a lot to them lyrically and musically. He was very good at doing that. And I, when I first started looking at his lyrics, they reminded me, Dylan writes about the Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. He's writing about Sarah Dylan. He's writing about a mercury mouth, a missionary smile, with a child of the hooligan, or hoodlum, hoodlum I think, Cradled in your arms, a sad-eyed lady of the lowlands, a land where no man goes. These are astonishing, I mean, astonishing, astonishing lyrics. Everything Dylan wrote was essentially astonishing. I, I Listen, I'd worked with the Beatles and the Stones one-on-one, I'd worked with George Harrison one-on-one, I was massively connected to songs like um, She's Leaving Home, a fabulous song, which later inspired another song by David, but especially songs that were very, very simple and yet very, very powerful like um, It Ain't Me Babe, Move Away From My Window, Leave At Your Own Chosen Speed. Who would write that? (laughs) Who else would write that? Or um, baby Blue, um, leave your dead behind you, they cannot follow you. Or Tambourine Man, that's not. Tambourine Man also connects very strongly to Mr. Bojangles, Nina Simone sings about. I met a man, he had a dog, he drank a lot, and she meets him in the county jail. Mr. Bojangles, Dylan sings, I'm rounded on my heels. You know, a marvelous idea, I'm rounded on my heels. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, sing me a song. That, that's what I saw in David, that ability to connect with people, which was very much in those early lyrics. And then in songs like Width of a Circle, they became tremendously powerful songs on stage. Especially because they gave Bronson a chance to do long, extended guitar solos. And those were very, very important when we started performing the songs. But this All the Mad Man song is also a very, very strong song.
1: Tony DeFries, talking about the huge potential he recognized in the songs David was writing and recording when they first met in 1970. Songs that would eventually appear on the album The Man Who Sold the World. There is some great archive from this period in Bowie's career that's part of an ever-growing collection of memorabilia, a lot of it never seen before, that we're adding to the Main Man website each week. That's mainmanlabel.com. A fantastic record of a very exciting period in rock history. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. In the next episode, we hear from several people who lived and worked with David and Angie at Haddon Hall, the sprawling Victorian flat they rented in South London that David envisaged as an artistic commune, where over the course of several years, his career completely transformed. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.